Ours is a great nation. Throughout five millennia of our civilization and progress, the Chinese nation has made an indelible contribution to human progress. During the modern period, our nation has undergone many trials and tribulations and faced its gravest hour. Since then, numerous Chinese patriots have waged hard struggles for the sake of the great renewal of the Chinese nation. But time and again, they have failed. That was President Xi Jinping speaking in his inaugural address in late 2012 when he assumed control of China's Communist Party. As he spoke, hundreds of journalists, along with much of the world, looked on at a man that they still knew very little about. But now, nearly three years later, what do we really know about Xi Jinping and his vision for China? The magnitude of the changes are just extraordinary. And this is a guy that says, I'm taking personal ownership of this. Xi is trying to live the antithesis of what Deng Xiaoping recommended. It's very dangerous. I I think he sees that he has a a huge mess to clean up. I may be the only person to say something positive about Xi Jinping here. His political frame of reference is very much a conservative party view. I think that Xi Jinping Uh, we've seen from the very beginning of his term in office, is obsessed with one historical episode. I just absolutely feel like I cannot judge him yet. I still don't quite think we know who this man is, but he's slowly starting to reveal little pieces. Over the next half hour, we'll explore the man who some have labeled the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao. A man that, for better or worse, appears to be leading a nation of 1.4 billion into uncharted waters. We'll hear from a National Book Award winner, a former U.S. Treasury Secretary, a former Prime Minister, and several others. I'm Eric Fish, and this is the Asia Society Podcast. What you discover with Xi Jinping is that he's enormously steeped in his own country's history, and the history of his own party in the country. That's Kevin Rudd, President of the Asia Society Policy Institute and former Prime Minister of Australia. Fluent in Chinese, Rudd has met Xi Jinping on many occasions going back to the 1980s. Um, There is a profound historical frame frame of reference which affects his current worldview as well. Namely that China, uh, having been uh, first uh, occupied in the modern period by the British after the First Opium War, uh, when Hong Kong was ceded, through to the defeat of the Japanese in 1949, more than 100 years later, through what they call the century of humiliation, foreign humiliation at the hands of the West plus Japan. This has burned deep into Xi Jinping's worldview and therefore the need to cause China to go through its own national reawakening, its own national renaissance, its own national rebirth. The Chinese word for it is fuxing. And this is a core part of what he describes as his dream China's future, which is to bring China back to a respected place in the Global Council of Nations. But in his inaugural speech, she acknowledged that many obstacles still stand in the way of China's great revival. In the new environment, our party faces many severe challenges, and there are many pressing problems within the party that need to be resolved. The problems among our party members and cadres of corruption, taking bribes, being out of touch with the people, undue emphasis on formalities and bureaucratism must be addressed with great efforts. The whole party must be vigilant against them. These remarks hinted at what was to come under Xi, 
but at the time they barely raised an eyebrow. Chinese leaders routinely make token gestures about the need to battle corruption, a rampant problem that was eroding the Communist Party's legitimacy. But almost nobody, whether foreign observers or Communist Party elite, seemed to fully appreciate what she had in mind. Orville Schell, director of Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations, explains why. He's a smart man, an able man, but he's a man who has learned that if you want to rise up in the Chinese leadership, one of the best ways to do that, particularly in public, is keep your peace. Don't reveal too much. And when he came to the United States at Joe Biden's invitation, I followed him around the country, and I have to say, he revealed very little. Uh, You can be with him, look at him, hear him talk, and still not really know what is going on inside his head. But that's the nature of the game now. The less you reveal, the better off you will probably be. Evan Osnos, a New Yorker correspondent based in Beijing from 2005 to 2013, recently published an 11,000-word profile on Xi Jinping. He agrees that if Xi had been harboring plans of making sweeping changes, he kept those intentions well guarded. Yeah, this has been one of the things that I think is the one of the biggest surprises about Xi Jinping is how incomplete the portrait was of him before he took power. There'd been a lot written about it, and much of it was very good, but there was a lot we didn't really know. So, for instance, the image that I had was uh, a sort of adequate provincial administrator. Um, He was somebody who had spent 17 years working his way through the provinces. He wasn't racing to the top. He was a casual fan of American pop culture. He had told American diplomats, for instance, that he liked Saving Private Ryan and The Godfather. And he had basically gotten the top job, we were told, because he had offended the fewest number of his peers. And that was it, more or less. And what we've discovered over the course of his first two and a half years in office is that he has a much stronger affirmative sense of what it is that he's trying to accomplish than I think we understood in advance. He has a project, and that project has become all-consuming in China. It's political, it's economic, and um, it's amazing how much it has crowded out other political actors on the stage. At the time Xi came to power in 2012, there seemed to be consensus among both domestic and foreign analysts that China needed to reform. Annual GDP growth, which had been growing by double digits for the past two decades, was starting to slow. At the same time, a raft of social, environmental, and even political problems were starting to bubble up in a way that Communist Party authorities and censors were struggling to contain. A relentless succession of incidents illustrating things like pollution, income inequality, and corruption were going viral on social media, making many Chinese aware of issues they'd scarcely appreciated before. But tackling the roots of these issues was proving difficult. China's growth of the past two decades under an opaque authoritarian system had seen vast amounts of wealth and power accumulate around a small group of elites. It seemed almost impossible to unravel these deeply entrenched special interests. But then Xi Jinping took stage. The hard thing about Xi Jinping as a figure to write about and think about is that you're very often shaped by the last person you talk to because people can make an equally passionate case that he is the most important, bold economic reformer that we've had in a generation and that that ultimately is the most essential fact about him. And then you can talk to somebody else who can make a very compelling case that he has systematically rolled back China's openness to the world in a way that is fundamentally corrosive to the country that we know today. Former U.S. Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson is one that sees Xi as a bold economic reformer. He's met Xi on several occasions going back to when he was party secretary of Zhejiang province in the early 2000s. 
At a recent Asia Society event to launch his new book, Dealing with China, Paulson had this to say about Xi. I was very impressed with him, and he was a big believer in the private sector. We talked about innovation in the private sector, and whenever he had been, you know, whether it was in Fujian or Zhangzhen or wherever he was, the private sector played a bigger role, talked about the private sector as opposed to the state-owned sector. Paulson is in a camp that appreciates the enormity of the task that's been placed before Xi now that he's taken the top leadership role. This task, Paulson says, is virtually without precedent. It's one thing to say it intellectually, but I can't, I don't think there's ever been a case in history when you've had a leader try to make so much change in such a massive scale all at once. Mm-hmm. Because what he is doing, when you take a look at it, it is rebooting a $10 trillion economy where the economic model is running out of steam. All of this with really high expectations of the Chinese people. All of this with a party that's rife with corruption. And while you're having a corruption, anti-corruption campaign, the magnitude of the changes are just extraordinary. And this is a guy that says, I'm taking personal ownership of this. After Xi came to power, he initiated an anti-corruption campaign, promising to attack both the tigers and the flies, referring to high-level and low-level officials. Since then, he hasn't disappointed. The campaign has gone on longer and deeper than any of the hundreds that preceded it over the years. Officials at levels previously thought to be untouchable have been cut down. And according to many foreign and domestic media reports, officials at lower levels are saying they're now scared to do anything that might even resemble graft. This is backed up by plunging sales in associated industries like high-end restaurants, expensive liquor, and other luxury items. But analysts like Paulson have also noted that the targets of Xi's campaign dovetail suspiciously well with his other political agenda. I look at this anti-corruption campaign first and foremost, you know, to curb corruption, which, Mm -hmm. you know, as Xi Jinping sees it, threatens to destroy the the Communist Party if if you don't uh, limit it. But then secondly, it's a hammer in the toolbox he can take out to help uh, build consensus and consolidate power because he's, he's also striking at pillars of, uh, of the state economy. This consensus and consolidation of power, as Paulson put it, is one of the many controversial aspects of Xi's governance approach. Since Deng Xiaoping left the political stage in the early 1990s, the Chinese president has more or less been the first among equals on the seven to nine man Politburo Standing Committee. But now, Xi appears to be using his anti-corruption campaign as a means of purging opponents that stand in the way of his reform agenda. Zhou Yongkang, for instance, was a Politburo Standing Committee member and a political rival of Xi's that controlled much of China's oil industry, an industry that's resisted environmental reforms. Then last year, Zhou became the highest level leader taken down in decades. Susan Shirk, a former U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and author of several books on China, says that this harkens back to an unsavory period in China's history. Speaking at an event hosted by Asia Society's online magazine, China File, about whether Xi Jinping's politics represent a return to the Mao era, she had this to say. He is definitely trying to concentrate more power in the hands of a single leader. After decades of collective leadership that's more somewhat institutionalized, but in a way it's just showing us how weakly institutionalized it was that he's able to consolidate this power again. 
And of course, yes, and that this um, really denies the whole perspective on the Mao era that Deng Xiaoping had. Deng Xiaoping wrote this brilliant essay um, critiquing the over-concentration of authority in the Mao system and then recommending retirement ages, regular meeting of collective institutions, age limits, etc., so that you would not have a dictatorial rule where nobody dared question it and it could be there forever. And yet Xi Jinping really, we haven't heard much about that essay, have we? Because basically she is trying to live the antithesis of what Deng Xiaoping recommended. I had no guess about what Xi Jinping would do. That's Andrew Walder, a Stanford political sociologist and author of the book China Under Mao, A Revolution Derailed. But if you look at uh, our understanding of how the old communist regimes stagnated and then eventually fell apart, uh, collective leadership is, doesn't provide a strong enough executive authority right. to push through unpopular programs. Right. to push through unpopular reforms. And this was the story of the Brezhnev era. Mm-hmm. And then they had two very short-lived um, general party secretaries in the Soviet Union who were only in power for a couple of years. So it's not at all surprising in terms of, of what does it take to try to revitalize the system. I think, I think people in all countries sort of like having a strong leader. You know, people, especially in big, powerful countries like the United States and China, people like having a strong leader. Now, obviously... We have a lot of checks and balances on our executive authority compared to China. But I'm not surprised that people like having a strong leader at all. And she is, he's a much more attractive figure than Hu Jintao. You know, he gets out with the people, with all the <clears throat> television cameras behind him and tries to show, I mean, it's, that part is really right out of Mao. But I think the anti-corruption campaign is hugely popular. And remember, we did have major reform agenda announced at the third plenum, even rule of law in the fourth plenum. So people have a hopeful attitude that this strong authority will result in some very positive changes. It could be positive. Yeah. It could yeah. be positive in, in the sense that you, you do need someone to, to take a system that's drifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially one where the elite is really uh, taking, taking over things and, and um, reaping enormous wealth. And you have kind of these state-owned firms that are kind of sucking resources away from the private economy. And, and this, is where this is one of the things that Xi Jinping claims he wants to do. So from a, you know, the, the perspective of a functioning uh, government, they had a, a kind of gridlock that we have in a very different context have had in the last uh, 10 years. And this is one way of getting out of it. Um, so in a way, this is the last chance, I think, for, for the, the party to revitalize itself. But it's very risky because you know, one reason the party elite wanted to move in the direction that Deng Xiaoping laid out for collective leadership is because they'd seen <coughs> from the Mao model right. how unchecked power in the hands of a dictator can take the whole country off a cliff. It's very dangerous. Human rights advocates argue that this danger is already being realized. 
Since Xi Jinping came to power, scores of journalists, scholars, civil society organizations, and activists have found themselves targeted for activities that were tacitly tolerated in years past. Last fall, for instance, several members of a group that promoted assets disclosure for government officials received prison terms of up to six and a half years on charges of picking quarrels and provoking trouble. Then in March, five feminist activists were detained for more than a month on the same charges after planning to hand out stickers against sexual harassment. Economic reform coupled with a political clampdown may appear somewhat paradoxical, but Andrew Walder explains that there is a rationale. I, I think he sees that he has a, a huge mess to clean up, uh, and he is taking risks by going after some fairly high-level people for corruption, um, and he's only started nibbling away um, at the problem. But if you're going to do that, uh, a, a common theme in, in the PRC history is that um, officials can permit dissent to grow to criticize leaders that they're uh, against. So if, if you're if you're going to go after members of the elite, the last thing you want is for people to start criticizing about the environment, about women's rights, or any of these things. Because if local officials can start fires in various provinces and then basically criticize Xi Jinping for throwing China in disorder, let's call off this anti-corruption campaign. So in a way, there's a certain logic. Uh, it, it, may not, it may not simply be the lack of respect from foreigners. It, it may simply be he's, he's trying to defend his, uh, his, his rear, in, in, in a sense, to prevent people from trying to stir up trouble that will undermine him politically. So as long as this campaign is going on, I'd, I'd be very surprised to see any kind of opening up. One thing that might bear consideration in Xi's political approach is his family background. His father, Xi Zhongshun, was an early member of the Communist Party in the 1920s and ascended to the rank of vice premier by 1959. He was purged by Mao a few years later, but was then rehabilitated under Deng Xiaoping in 1978. From there, Xi became an integral part of Deng's economic reforms, instituting what were called the Four Special Economic Zones. These were cities that were allowed to experiment with economic liberalization and opening to foreign trade, and they were highly controversial. Kevin Rudd argues that this experience by Xi the Elder would leave a heavy influence on his son. Putting back into Chinese history, it's a bit like this. Those four special economic zones coincided with the 19th century treaty ports uh, where foreign countries, namely the British, uh, but a bunch of others as well, uh, demanded uh, exclusive access to these treaty ports on what the Chinese described as the unequal treaties between China and the West. And so to go back to these after the revolution of 49 and then to say 30 years after that in 79, guess what we're going to do? We're going to open the doors to these treaty ports to the West. So the left of the Chinese Communist Party said, you're going to do what? Uh, this was not welcome news. This was the vehicle through which China's initial exploitation occurred in the internal historiography of this uh, by the Chinese Communist Party. So Xi Jinping was given this job um, and as a result, the four economic zones were eventually expanded in scope. Uh, the number of special economic zones grew, and in time, the policies adopted in the special economic zones were adopted across the country. And so in the economic reform tradition of China, his father represents what I describe as um, a liberal reform agenda. But the other thing to say about his dad comes the other way around. Xi Jinping was also a uh, revolutionary uh, commander for the uh, Red Army, uh, for the Eighth Root Army, uh, in the lead up to the 49 revolution. 
And so he is a party loyalist. His father was a party loyalist. Um, strong on the party's role in bringing about the revolution. Strong on the party's role in holding the country together. So with Xi Jinping, you have this, his father, you have this combination of a hardline uh, political um, supporter of the continued role of the Chinese Communist Party on the one hand, but at the same time, someone who understands that China's future hinges on uh, the continued reform of its economy in a market direction. We may find this to be an enormous contradiction in terms, but that very much explains in part the political worldview and the economic worldview of his son, uh, Xi Jinping. Because of Xi Jinping's revolutionary pedigree, some analysts speculate that he's more determined than anyone to preserve the Communist Party's power and historical legacy. I think that Xi Jinping, uh, we've seen from the very beginning of his term in office, is obsessed with one historical episode, and it didn't happen in China. It was the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Communist Party. That's Roderick McFarquhar, professor of history and political science at Harvard and author of the book Mao's Last Revolution. He was also speaking at the China File event. And he's absolutely determined not to be Gorbachev. In my view, he's doing things in China today which could actually be worse than what Gorbachev did in the Soviet Union. Both men wanted to save communism. And in fact, I think Gorbachev believed in it far more deeply than Xi Jinping does. Um, I think the point about Xi Jinping is that he agrees with his predecessors after Deng that corruption could bring down the party and the state. So that's the reason for his anti-corruption campaign. And my view is that this is dangerous, more dangerous than Gorbachev, for two reasons. One is that it is using an instrument far more powerful than Gorbachev had. He just had a volunteer intellectuals, editors, writers. Um, he didn't have the party machine. They were against him. Xi Jinping is using the party machine. That's very powerful. We see it spreading fear among high and low. Um, and I think that the, uh, the second thing is that um, she does not want to go down in history as the man under whom the Chinese regime collapsed. This might help explain why Xi has so aggressively attacked threats to the Communist Party, real or perceived, whether they come in the form of official corruption or vocal activists. As China enters a period of economic turmoil, as we've seen recently in the falling stock market and a general slowdown in growth, this looks likely to continue. Kevin Rudd explains the prism through which Xi views things. If you're um, looking at the world from Xi Jinping's perspective, the number one priority, stated or unstated, on their daily or weekly meeting agenda is keeping the party in power. So what are they therefore mindful of? They're very mindful of uh, threats to the party's uh, absolute position within. Uh, and therefore, uh, what you are seeing increasingly is a tightening of the uh, environment uh, from uh, the perspective of uh, uh, the uh, activities of universities, the activities of uh, cultural dissidents, the activities of political dissidents. This is occurring as we speak. The second uh, source of concern uh, is through the emergence of alternative centres of power. And that's why the Chinese authorities will look with great scepticism at the emergence of uh, religious organisations in China, which from their perspective become potentially uh, uh, significant sources of uh, dissent. Not all, uh, but some. And then that leads me to my third point. 
is they are very much focused on the separatist tendencies both in Xinjiang and Tibet, and now Xinjiang in particular because of the forms of uh, violent jihadism that you see being played out in various parts of China in what I would describe as this great crescent of instability uh, brought about by violent jihadism from Xinjiang in the northeast to Boko Haram in, in northern Nigeria in the west and the great crescent of lands in between. So if you were putting together the hierarchy of concerns, it would be that. And then finally, a deep view held within China is that uh, Uncle Sam is out there uh, actively fermenting a lot of this and that Uncle Sam is also engaged in a de facto policy of containment to prevent China's rise and emergence as well. The bottom line is that uh, we've often assumed since Deng and the cowboy hat, uh, through the ups and downs of Tiananmen Square and uh, what occurred in 89, but through the 90s and through the noughties, that essentially there's a slow evolution of an open economy creating a more open society and a more open political system in China. Under Xi Jinping, the opening of the economy will continue. There'll be a continued openness to this, of society relative to a Maoist past. But his political frame of reference is very much a conservative party view. And therefore, what he will seek to advance, and I think it is his worldview, is what he calls the China model. Um, the China development model is not a liberal capitalist model. It's more of a state capitalist model. And I think uh, it's very important that we in the collective West understand that. But how is she being perceived by his own citizens domestically? Well, anecdotally quite well. So well, in fact, that some have suggested it's verging on a personality cult. In contrast to his predecessor, Hu Jintao, who is often described as wooden and robotic, she has presented a more personal and refreshing image that's been reinforced by state-controlled media. In some cases, it's even gone beyond state-sanctioned propaganda. Late last year, a music video went viral on China's internet, paying homage to Xi and his famous folk singer wife. China produced an Uncle Xi, the song goes. He dares to fight the tigers, not afraid of heaven, not afraid of earth. Dreamers all look to him. The song's production and subsequent spread was apparently a genuine grassroots effort, independent of government propagandists. Evan Osno says that between the personal image she projects and his actual policies, public affection like this among common Chinese is indeed genuine. I think there are people on the street, for instance, who are very satisfied with the symbolic demonstration of a attack on corruption. I mean, everybody was talking about it, thinking about it for the last few years, and he's made this very in some ways almost theatrical demonstration of a crackdown, having people paraded in front of TV cameras every day on the evening news. Uh, he's also asserted China's nationalistic um, uh, interests overseas. I mean, he has said that protecting Chinese interests, protecting Chinese territory is essential. That plays pretty well in the, uh, on, the, uh, on a populist level. But among elites, the opinion is much more apprehensive partly because people don't know if they're going to be targeted by the anti-corruption campaign or on the other side if there's somebody who's doing a kind of more provocative intellectual work that that may run them afoul of political uh, fault lines. But uh, there's just sense among people who are holding the levers of power in China that he's changed things so fast and uh, without a real clear sense of where it's headed. And for that reason, it makes them very uncomfortable because the rules that obtained for the last 10 years very clearly no longer do, and they don't really know where that leads.
That's all for today. If you want to hear more episodes, you can go to asiasociety.org slash podcast, or you can subscribe on iTunes. If you like what you hear, please leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. Our opening music is by Tiri Mangmang and his ensemble, Shui Man Tabin Zapwe. They were performing live at Asia Society as part of a season of Myanmar. The music you're hearing now is called Shi Da Da Loves Peng Mama, and that's by Song Zhe Gang. I'm Eric Fish, and we'll see you next time on the Asia Society Podcast.